Welcome back to another episode of the Sly Hooper Podcast, an off-season edition of the Sly Hooper Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Hustle Podcast Network. Speaking of Blue Wire Hustle, it's another Blue Wire Hustle collaboration. And as a little bit of a different hoops conversation today, we have on Brian Scott. He is the host of the Injured List Podcast, part of the Blue Wire Hustle Podcast Network. He also does a clubhouse show every Thursday and it's going to be ramping up as the NFL season starts and they basic he he basically talks about injuries on that as well uh Brian has a very extensive history in the medical field specifically in the sports medical field as well um longtime physician assistant orthopedic surgeon has been in sports medicine for nearly 15 years and it was a very dope and informative conversation that we had and specifically just wanted to talk about the bubble, its lingering effects, um, how much did the bubble play a role in the rash of injuries we saw this year. And, you know, we just go all over the place with a bunch of topics because, of course, there's a load management topic and all that stuff. And so, again, it was a very informative podcast, one of the more fun podcasts I'd done because I feel like as a Sixer fan, and, you know, a lot of Sixer fans have podcasts nowadays. You're really not a Sixer fan with a podcast until you have somebody in the medical field on your podcast to talk about injuries to your players because of the Sixers' extensive history with injuries. But uh, Brian is able to simply explain, you know, all the things we talk about, talk about some injuries with specific players, and all that good stuff. So... Without further ado, here's Brian Scott, host of the Injured List Podcast. Hello and welcome. We are here with Brian Scott, the host of the Injured List Podcast, uh, part of the Blue Wire Hustle Podcast Network. So fellow Blue Wire Hustler here, a little collaboration. Uh, Brian, first of all, thank you for uh, hopping on the uh, Sly Hooper Podcast. Yeah, Jordan, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so... Obviously, since it's in the name, it's a basketball podcast, so we're going to get to the hoops part in a second. A little bit of a different kind of hoops conversation because we're obviously going to be going into injuries and all that stuff. But actually, I wanted to. You're you're a guest on my podcast, so you know, whenever I invite the guest in, we want to get to know the person. So let's uh, start with your background. I was looking at your I was looking at your website, theinjuredlist.com. Um, Great, great lay, laid out website, by the way. Have Thank I you. would have no clue how to make a website <laughs> like that. Um, but you have a pretty long history uh, working with injuries, sports injuries, working um, working in sports, sports related, sports injury related field. So why don't you give uh, the listener uh, your background, how you got into uh, wanting to, you know, work uh, work as a physician assistant and be in orthopedic surgery and work with other sports organizations and all that stuff. Yeah, so, you know, it, it didn't start that way, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I, like a lot of young uh, kids in, back in the day and even today, had aspirations of becoming a professional athlete. And, you know, when you hit the ninth <laughs> grade and you're on the freshman team and you're the shortest guy, the oh, stockiest yeah. guy, yeah. 
can't jump the highest or run the fastest, you realize pretty quickly that those aspirations are probably I was a six-foot <laughs> flat center in high school. And then I realized, I was like, all right, maybe uh, it's time to uh, quit. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was even, you know, five foot seven doesn't get you very far. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I but I did have a passion for the games and I, the sports and uh, was always part of my uh, youth growing up. And, um, you know, I always had an interest in, in some type of medicine or medical field. And I originally started out my career actually as an athletic trainer, which uh, for those people that don't know, if you're watching sports on TV and when you see the athletes get hurt, the guys that run out on the field are usually the athletic trainers. And those guys' jobs are to basically prepare the athletes for competitions, help with injury preventions, treatment of uh, acute injuries that happen on the field of play. And they basically the guys behind the scene that keep the players healthy on the field performing at a high level, and then also working with the doctors, the PAs, and the other healthcare professionals to maintain their uh, athletes' uh, conditioning and all that stuff. So I started my career out as one of those guys, and I did that for about five years. And then at, during that time in that career, I worked very closely with a lot of orthopedic surgeons and uh, physician assistants. And so gradually my career kind of shifted more to wanting to do that work, which really incorporated more of these surgical treatments and being in the operating room, working in the physician's office. Um, so it's a little bit more comprehensive, a little bit less of the sports stuff, but I still had a very active involvement in athletics while I was working in New York, where I'm originally from. Right. I was uh, helping with St. John's University Athletics. I was helping with some other local division two schools and colleges, uh, high school athletics throughout my career. Uh, I had a brief stint as a trainer in minor league baseball for a season back in 2001 with the AAA team for the uh, Orioles at the time. So I've always been around it, even as a PA. Um, I work with the foot and ankle specialist now down in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I we treat athletes all the time, both current uh, professional amateur and collegiate athletes and former uh, professional amateur and collegiate athletes. So I've got a very um, broad uh, experience array. Yeah, I, I've been in a field. I've been on the locker room. I've been in the operating room. So I kind of got a lot of different views of how it all goes down and how it all plays out as far as sports injuries and how these athletes deal with them, what goes on behind the scenes. So, um, you know, that kind of translated into me producing my own podcast to kind of help give a different perspective on all this stuff, help provide some insight and education to those of you uh, who have your own sports podcasts and need somebody on to kind of delve into that stuff. Um, yeah. Or your fans who are, have fantasy uh, sports uh, rosters that they need to kind of tweak <laughs> yeah um it's interesting because there's like ten thousand bajillion podcasts sports podcasts now and i haven't really ran and ran or run into you know too many sports podcasts that talk about stuff on the injury side now i'm a sixer fan so i listen to a lot of sixers podcast and there's always ten thousand injuries the long history of injuries with the sixers we are experts in WebMD, obviously not a great source or whatever, but we, we, as soon as an injury happens, we always, we try to research it because we're just used to it at this point. But, um, I listen to a bunch of Sixers podcast and they always, whenever a big injury happens, they always have, you know, an orthopedic surgeon or a physical trainer or somebody like that on to explain what happened. So I feel like now I'm part of the lineage of Sixer, whoever, whatever Sixer fan has a podcast, they finally have a doctor. 
<laughs> doctor on. Yeah. So, you know, if if he, so I feel like, you know, kind of, you know, broken into now now as a Sixer fan. Um but um let's well, I'm glad uh, I can help in any way uh, to yeah. make that happen. <laughs> um we will get to the Sixers later by the way, but uh okay. I just want I'm I'm curious. Uh what sports did you what was your sport of choice? Did you have were you a multi-sport athlete? Did you have a preference? Uh what sports were you into when you were younger? Uh, so from a playing perspective, I, I always played basketball, baseball, started out actually playing a lot of soccer for many, many years mm. up until I got into about junior high. And then um, due to various factors, which I think is pretty common with a lot of United States youth, is they end up graduating from soccer and doing something else. Yeah, soccer was my, soccer just, my first sport yeah. in third grade. Yeah. And then, um, well, I did play basketball, but it wasn't like, you know, a serious league or anything. I mean, I was like four or five but by the time i had third grade like soccer was like my first serious serious quote-unquote uh sport i guess and then i just graduated from that after a year <laughs> i yeah, guess that, that kind of works the, that seems to be the case for a lot of uh, american uh youth these days even back when we were kids uh you know uh, soccer seems to be the one that the parents often got their kids involved in at a very young age and mm -hmm. they kind of gravitated toward other sports as they got older and I was the best third grade goalie third. ever. It's, a, it's an unfounded claim, but I'm going to stick with it. <laughs> yeah, you know, in retrospect, I kind of wish I had stuck with soccer more. I think I was built more for that, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Frame. <laughs> All right, so um, I guess we could transition to the NBA now, now that the season's over, summer league is finally over, um, and uh, there's actually there's a respite, respite now um, in the NBA season, considering it's damn near a 12-month sport now with free agency and all that stuff. So I, what, the reason I wanted to have you on is I wanted to kind of break down. It's really – it's felt like a long, long season starting from October of 2019. And, um, you know, we're here obviously now in August of 2021. There was a short – short break in between uh first of all obviously the season got suspended in the 2019-20 season um and you know they came back right around august or so late july with the orlando bubble uh first of all i wanted to know what was your what were your initial thoughts when the bubble happened and then after that we could kind of just go into you know the really shortened off season. I was kind of surprised at how early the league started uh, this past season. Um, but what were your initial thoughts uh, heading into the bubble? And, you know, after the bubble ends, you're hearing like, oh, they'll start, they might start the season in January, which seems logical, you know, to give the players some time. But then they surprise us and it's like, hey, we're starting December 22nd. And it's like, whoa, wait. But uh, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, well, a lot. Uh, I had a lot of opinions uh, back in the day when all this started to kind of develop. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you went from a abrupt end to the season due to COVID, and then with all the restrictions going on, and this, you know, went across the board, even to the athletes and the staff and the organizations, people weren't able to get together. The training sessions were limited. Guys couldn't find gym time. It was really difficult for everybody. Then to bring them back and throw them into this bubble and expect them to go full speed all out, you know, for a very shortened time frame and a very intense time um, was, was, was really concerning from an injury standpoint. Uh, I think for the most part, a lot of the teams made it through that period pretty unscathed from what I can re recollect. Now, when you look at the then transition to the 2020 season, short turnaround times, 
shortened season, but you know, intense, more compacted. Again, you're you're worried that you know these guys are die. Uh, these athletes usually are creatures of habit and routine. Yep. Especially when it comes to season after season after season. They're very Another maniacal schedule. with their routine. Yeah. And and rightfully so. I mean, I would yep. be too. Oh yeah. Um, you know, you want to peak at a certain time during the year. You want to make sure you don't overtrain. You want to make sure you're you're ready to go into the season. And all of that is 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 calculated. It's all measured. It's all planned. And when these things started happening around 2019, 2020, it threw everything into a state of flux. And you know that can be really difficult to do. And if you're one of these athletes who maybe was trying to do it on your own and you didn't have somebody who could guide you, like a personal trainer or some type of uh, you know fitness expert or nutritionist, uh, those guys were probably doomed to fail at some point over the last year or so. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's hard to say because we don't know what goes on behind the scenes. We don't know the, the intimate details, but you can probably, uh, or some of these players will probably tell you themselves that their whole training regimen got thrown out of whack. They, their conditioning was probably not where it normally would be, you know, and they, they would probably tell you more than anybody that these were probably some of the contributing factors to some of their injuries or possibly their teammates injuries. So you know, I think for the most part, though, being a professional athlete, it's not like looking at a recreational athlete. Uh, they have all the resources there that are available to them. Mm-hmm. So even in a shortened season or even in a short turnaround offseason, their onus is really on them. I mean, they can do it. Uh, it just takes a lot of planning. It takes a lot of execution and dedication. And, mo- you know, most of these guys have the resources there to do it. So I am a little concerned, though, about the turnaround time. I think that is um, probably one of the bigger concerns I've had is the, you know, they just got done playing, um, uh, what would they play, like 60 games or something? Yeah, they played uh, 72 games this season. I mean, that's, that's basically a full year. I yeah, mean, and they ended, and turn they ended in, in mid-July. and uh, It's much, much later than they normally end. Yep, exactly. It usually ends around in. early June, mid-June. And, and then what do they usually kick in, October? Yep, October. So, I mean, so training really camp starts at, next month. Yeah, I mean, that's like super short. Yeah. And that, that to me can spell disaster. Yeah, you know? and I do want to get into that because that was one of the re- – because one of the genesis, for I guess, for me to ask you to come on was I really think that this upcoming season, like the bubble is still going to linger into this season because of, one – the rash of injuries we have seen this year. Like I feel like injuries have kind of gone up lately over the years anyway, but for this was like abnormal. And I guess my next question before we get into that is what do you, how much should, how much blame, or I I guess blame, is it the right word? I can't find the correct word right now. Sorry. My coffee is still kicking in, but um, I'm just wondering how much credence should we give, to the bubble for all these injuries because honestly some of these injuries were freak injuries like I mean Jamal Murray's ACL injury was the one that comes to mind against the Warriors that I mean I've watched basketball or we've all watched basketball all our lives that's kind of that's a normal I mean it sounds terrible but it's a run-of-the-mill that's an ACL injury that happens a lot in basketball but then there's other wear and tear injuries that happen to the other Denver Nuggets, um, specifically the final four teams in the bubble in the bubble playoffs, the Heat, the Celtics, the Lakers, the Nuggets, they all got eliminated in the first round one way or another because of injuries or 
uh, for these past playoffs because of injuries and COVID and all that stuff. But how much credence should we give the? How much did they? How much did the bubble really play a role in? All, was it all these injuries? Was it most of them? Like that's where I struggle to. Uh, I guess, and I guess that's where my lack of knowledge in the medical field comes in. But it's always that debate of how much did it really uh, factor in. Yeah, you know, I mean, anything that we can gather is based on observational data, right? It's not hard science. It's just right. from what we're seeing, and we don't necessarily have access to the to the information. Now, what I will tell you is that most of these professional sports organizations have injury tracking software that they use. Mm -hmm. So they are able to tell whether or not there's an aberration in one particular injury from year to year, if it had something to do with the bubble. They can look at all that statistical data and come up with actual hard evidence. So whether or not they do that and if they release that information to the public, who knows? But I can guarantee you they have it somewhere sitting in a computer file. Yeah. Um, now, you know, just from an anecdotal uh, point, evidence point of view um, – I don't know if it necessarily was any different than what it probably would have been if you extrapolated that over three regular or two and a half regular seasons with normal time frames in between. It, I think it just got, you know, sometimes the media will take these things and kind of run with it too. Because yeah. it impacts the game so much more when you now are in a bubble with eight other teams fighting for that championship that you normally wouldn't have this type of playing format. So anytime, of, especially if a big name player goes down, now all of a sudden, whoa, it's the injury and it's the bubble, right? They got to tie it back to something because it yeah. makes a good, good story. So I, I, don't, I don't lend too much credence to the bubble being the major factor, but, I, but I, it definitely plays a role and it's definitely significant. Yeah. Because, because like we've talked about before, it, it changes the timeline. It changes the preparation that these guys do. And it from a physiologic standpoint, if you're not able to recover, rest, heal, and condition – in a normal time frame or to what your body requires, then it, it it's going to throw things off and it's going to potentially predispose you to some type of injury. So you can, you can, you can definitely relate that to the bubble and the shortened season, the shortened off season. Yeah. I mean, and also like there were teams like, you know, for example, the Washington wizards, I know the Memphis Grizz, the Phoenix suns, excuse me. They had, they didn't play basketball for like a week because of COVID protocol. So then they had to make up all these games. So there are definitely a lot of contributing factors of, but uh, definitely uh, the bubble did have some kind of role in it and how much, you know, obviously, like you said, it's all anecdotal and, you know, the media has definitely has a part in it. And, you know, I guess technically I am part of the media. So, you know, <laughs> I, I will take my, I will take my blame in that as well. Um, but um, it, it's just, I, I see all these injuries happening to these stars. And then uh, we talked about it earlier. Um, the finals ended th these past finals. Congratulations to the Milwaukee Bucks again, um, ended in about mid July, which is, about a month later than you than usual when the season ends and then now training camp's gonna start in September because they want to you know get back on track to having the normal 82 game season and things like that so how do you this is still kind of a quick turnaround and um I'm just wo wondering um are we going to do you think that it's going to be an issue again like the last time or is this going to be something that'll play another role in in maybe another injury riddled season I mean guys like Kawhi um you know obviously Jamal Murray uh 
you know, stars that suffered devastating injuries, they're going to be out for a while, especially since they suffered these injuries like wade into the season. Um, but how do you how do you look at this quick turnaround and how it's going to relate to this upcoming season, the 2021-22 NBA season? Yeah, so it's going to impact guys like them significantly because now you're changing basically the time frame with which they have to get their rehab, get their surgery done, get their rehab in, and then be cleared to play and come back to basketball activities. So, you know, you have thrown off that entire time frame now based on the start of the season, the end of the last season. And and it all can get traced back to when their injury occurred because if it was during an out of normal time frame, then it's going to throw off everything that comes after that. So Kawhi definitely is affected. And, you know, one guy that keeps coming to my mind who wasn't actually even playing through all this, but had been injured the year before was um, Clay Thompson. Yep. No, yeah. who's to say that some of this didn't affect his rehab while he was coming back from an ACL and potentially may have caused his Achilles tendon rupture. Yeah, that's that a good point. I, I'm actually um, working on a video about the Warriors for my YouTube yeah. channel. And I, I, well, obviously I didn't go into the extent of his injury, but it just made me realize like Clay Thompson suffered two devastating Devastate. injuries, like before the season even started. So, yeah. And you you could probably put some type of causality on the whole pandemic and the restricted access to rehab facilities and stuff. And the Achilles was the opposite leg, I believe, too. Yeah, I, I believe it was, if you're not mistaken. Um, I, I think so. And, you know, would that have happened in a normal course of a year where he may have, you know, been able to kind of get in the gym more? I Had mean, his who, usual who resources. Right. And, you know, did did that maybe pressure him? to alter his schedule because he was trying to get back for the 2021 season. I mean, we don't know. We're not privy to that information, but you could probably, you could speculate that and it wouldn't be out of this world. Um, I think of, of, so those guys aside, I think the only other people that this is probably going to really affect more are going to be those older veterans who went deep into the playoffs. Right. I think that you'll see those guys probably use some more of that load management that we hear about all the time oh yeah we're going to talk about that <laughs> yeah, we're going to see a lot of that this year from those type of players and one guy who comes to my mind is like chris paul you'll probably see lebron doing that yeah um, i don't so, think Kawhi's going to play this year no i i would be shocked consider i mean considering how we've seen how he handles injuries and how extra cautious he is and you know right, right rightfully so um, well, if this is the same knee he was dealing with with issues a couple of years ago where he was basically just like i'm not playing mm -hmm. then he's in the, he's He's in a world of pro he's gonna have a world of problems. Yeah, I'm forward. actually worried about post 30s Kawhi. Like, obviously, we don't want to speculate, and we want these players to be healthy because basketball is fun, and it's fun when Kawhi Leonard's on the court. But yeah. with these leg injuries, and you know, his chronic, I guess, leg issue was prop was uh, cropping up last season too, uh, before the bubble started, before the season got suspended, and that's why he was sitting out all these games. I think Doc Rivers said he practiced him and Paul George together practiced like one time, which is insane to me to think about, considering basketball is so rhythmic and chemistry plays a big part in it. But yeah, I just I can't imagine Kawhi is going to be playing at some point at any point this season. I I I highly doubt it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what what was that? Oh, I'd be shocked if he stepped on a basketball court at all this year. Yeah. And also with Murray, like with Jamal Murray, uh, even if he does come back, like 
halfway, 60% through the season. Um, what is he going to look like? Uh, how long is it going to take for him to get back to that percentage of the player he was before the injury happened, which was really damn good. Um, it, it just, it, the, I feel like, well, not just obviously the bubble factors in, but I just feel like this one long kind of extended season, it's just going to bleed into the next season. And because the NBA is going to definitely, it's definitely trying to get back on track with the uh, oh, I, 82 I, game I, season. I, it's, I'm telling you, some of these guys with some of these injuries they've had, with the lack of the normal time frame, the lack of access, the lack of time to recover and heal and train with their partners and teammates, I'm t it, some of these guys, it's going to take like, a year and a half to two years for them to get over this. The one guy who this actually worked in his favor and who I think did the smartest thing ever was Kevin Durant. Yeah, I, I knew you were going to bring him up. And he decided not to play in that shortened 1920 uh, season. I think that was the smartest move he could have done for himself because what he essentially did was gave himself enough time to heal and do some more therapy and get ready for this past 2020. Yeah, skipped out on the bubble and ga gave him an extra like what six months like if and you basically that, had 18 months to recover yeah and that window of time that 18 to months to two almost two years is like where a lot of guys will finally wake up one morning and be like hey i forgot i even had my achilles fixed or i forgot i had my knee surgery or i forgot because it takes the body physiologically almost sometimes that long to kind of recoup and recover and heal and that process you know initially happens very quick but then that complete remodeling and, and the body getting used to that new physiology and all that stuff, it can take 18 months sometimes. So I think he John Wall's another one that comes to mind because he was basically out for two years. And obviously with the longer season and stuff, it gave him more time in. He's not the same John Wall in Washington, but he when he first stepped on the court and I was watching the Rockets early on in the season, I was like, whoa, he's still like faster than well obviously yeah. he's an athlete he's a top percentile athlete in, among humans but he was still kind of really fast he looked good he looked yeah. good uh, better than he's looked in the last few years so um that so i guess uh, actually i i just thought of another question because i'm i'm interested in this too because the achilles injury that's like that's the death sentence injury i feel like Injuries have improved over the years, like torn ACLs, like you recover from that, um, you come back stronger, all that stuff. All these knee injuries, like even, I feel like even a torn meniscus back in like the 60s and 70s or the 50s, like that was a death sentence for a basketball player. But now players just come back from that like nothing. Uh, what, what were you thinking as somebody from the medical field watching Kevin Durant still be Kevin Durant pretty much? on this uh, coming back from this devastating injury we're really the only player we can go back to in history that actually fully came back from and played well after the injury was Dominique Wilkins like what were you yeah. thinking when you were watching this see the season he had well and I did a whole episode on Achilles tendon injuries uh like last year I think so if you guys want to go back and listen to it and I talked about Dominique Wilkins as one of those guys. He was very young when that happened, actually. He was like in his 20s. Yeah. So he wasn't nearly as uh, to the age of Kevin Durant. Um, I was concerned. You know, this this injury, Kobe had this injury, and yeah. it wasn't long before he ended up retiring. He was never the same when he came back from his Achilles tendon injury. I think it was so, 34 when that yeah. Achilles injury happened, too. Yeah. 
And it can be pretty devastating. You know, you lose some explosiveness, you lose some strength, you lose some power. No matter how good some of our surgical techniques and some of our instrumentation has gotten over the years, there are some things that we just can't change, right? And, you know, you rupture a tendon, we fix it, you know, but it's still a tendon at the end of the day. Yeah. And it still heals the same. We can't speed up that process. We can't change that process. We can make the surgery more reliable. We can make the rehab more accelerated, but the end of the day, it's still the same tissue. It's still the same anatomy, same physiology behind it all. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, you know, I was concerned, but I, again, I, the fact that he gave himself that extra six months during the bubble, I think was huge and didn't try to rush back for that. Yeah. I think that is what really salvaged him for this f- past year and years going forward. So he looked great. I mean, he looked great. You would never know he had an Achilles tendon rupture. Yeah, um, and I think if it would, like you said, if it was like a normal, if the season didn't stop the, and he, you know, had to come back for a normal, in a normal timeline, um, maybe he doesn't look the same. And we're thinking, uh-oh, like this is Kevin Durant starting this fast decline, but now he has a, he just signed a big fat extension. So um, now look, there's, a, there's a lot of other things that go into this too. I mean, yeah, when we talk about Achilles tendon ruptures, you know, there's different parts of the tendon that can be torn. And, you know, there's a little bit of luck that plays into this. I mm-hmm. mean, if you have a tear where the tendon starts to blend into the muscle tissue, we call that the muscular tendinous junction. Well, that's a, that's a completely different animal. And in, in some cases, much more, much more difficult to surgically repair and to bounce back from to an elite level like that. Um, you can also have a tear that's closer to the attachment site of the tendon, closer to the bone on the heel. That also can change our surgical approach and technique, which can then also change the recovery. So there's a little bit of luck involved. You know, we're not, I'm not privy to all that information and most of us won't be. They don't usually ever get reports in that much detail. The only way you'll know that is if you're part of the surgical or medical team taking care of those guys. Yeah. But without knowing some of those finer details, it's hard to predict with 100% accuracy how well they're going to bounce back. So we have to go with laws of averages and things like that. Um, yeah, of course. His tear, Durant's tear may have been mid mid substance Achilles tendon, mid tendon, which is are the most ideal because those typically heal the best mm. and are surgically repaired the easiest. Come together really nice, and guys are usually now we've accelerated the rehabs a little bit more than what we used to do years ago. Years ago, we lock them up in a cast for like four to six weeks before we started them doing any therapy. Nowadays, we actually get them going a little bit more. Earlier. Yeah, and the reason for that is because we've changed a little bit of the technique that we do it, the repair, and we've changed some of the materials that we use for the sutures that we use for the repair. So, you know, that is just advancements in medicine and equipment and technology. But um, as far as everything healing, again, it's still the same. You know, the human body hasn't changed. Yeah, exactly. Just some of the things, resources and technology that we have to create a good environment for these things to heal. So. You know, there's definitely some luck in it. Um, you know, meniscus tears are not all the same. ACL tears are not all the same. Mm. You know, we talk in generalities and we get reports, you know, ACL tear. But, you know, there, sometimes there's other structures that are injured. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Um, so well, what? So one more question before um, I wanted to move on to some certain players. Um, and you say meniscus tear. Um, any Sixer fans who happen to catch this podcast, that's just a trigger word <laughs> for <laughs> for us. Um, but uh, so when we talk about injuries like 
Kevin Durant's injury. Obviously, before that initial Achilles injury happened, he was out for a good chunk of the playoffs that year, the 2019 playoffs, because he had a calf injury. And those are usually tricky. Obviously, I'm not in the medical field, but when you watch sports for a long time, like hamstring injuries and calf injuries are the most tricky ones because they could just, you know, they could just react again, even if you come back and do all the right procedures and all that stuff, it could just pop back up again. So yeah. I'm wondering when it comes specifically to that and also, I guess, the broader topic of connecting the dots between what injury caused the next injury and stuff, um, how do you think, I guess – how much of that is true, like connecting the calf injury that he had in that same leg to the Achilles and him coming back? Like, how do you feel about It's Obviously, again, we don't have we're not privy to all the information. We can only just speculate with what we got and what we've seen over the past. And um, unless you're actually in the room, but connecting the dots with injuries, with, with injuries, uh, how much of it is accurate of course i guess it's a tough question but it seemed like that calf injury when you know people when he came back in game i believe it was game five of that finals you know people were obviously worried but he i guess he was fine in warm-ups they cleared him to play and then you know he he looked like kevin durant again he hit like three threes and was like "Uh uh-oh could they come back and win this series but then boom the achilles injury happens I mean, how was that? Was the calf connected in some sort of way? Like, is it like a kinetic thing? Like, obviously, there's I've you've we heard the terms like kinetic chain. How much credence do you put into that as somebody who is more versed in this than I am? Uh, that's a tough question because it's really hard to kind of and hindsight's twenty twenty, right? I mean, like we of could course. go back and probably find a myriad of things that could potentially have led to his Achilles tendon rupture, mm-hmm. but um. You know, we all go down those YouTube rabbit holes. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> no, but this is one of those injuries, man. When when that Achilles tendon goes, it goes. And sometimes there's never any An sign explanation. Yeah, um, I can I can vividly recall the first Achilles tendon rupture I witnessed from the sidelines, and it was a, a referee during a basketball game. Oh wow! Uh, it the guy was doing great, and uh, boom, one one step. That's all it took. You know, uh, that guy, and he. I vividly remember. You know, we were asking him and evaluating him. And, Never had any problems, you know. Just the thing just let it go. Just happened. Yeah, um, and that's the nature of the beast, unfortunately, for some time for those injuries. But I mean, I, I we could nitpick it apart. There was probably something going on there physiologically that led eventually to that tendon rupturing. Whether or not it bothered Kevin Durant is very subjective, and he's the only one that can tell you. And in some cases, they don't even know because it doesn't bother them. Mm-hmm. I've seen people who have huge bone spurs by their Achilles. Their Achilles are super thickened. And these aren't even athletes, right? And they have no pain whatsoever. And you get an MRI of that Achilles and you can see that the consistency of the tendon, the quality of the tendon is not nearly what it should be. And it's not healthy at all. But Mm -hmm. yet they have no pain. They can function just fine. And you know, athletes are no different to some in some regard. They may he may have had something going on there. He may have had some type of inflammation in the tendon. He may have had a partial tear at some point, and maybe it just never bothered him. But you know, don't forget when you're comparing elite athletes to the general population, these guys get paid a lot of money. There's a lot of pressure on them to be out there to perform. Yep. And, you know, they've got pressure not just from 
the, their immediate circle and the organization and the fans, but themselves too. I mean, they've got to live up to a certain degree, uh, a level of playability. Level and, of excellence. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, these are guys that are, especially Durant. I mean, he's vying for the Hall of Fame, right? Like, Oh, yeah. He, if he retired right yeah. now, he's in the Hall of Fame automatically. Right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, does he want to go out, like, sitting out because of a little Achilles pain or something? You know, and maybe, not, and maybe he put that pressure on himself. It's hard to say. So I try not to get too hung up on the what ifs and what may have caused and what you got to uh, from from a healthcare perspective, you, you deal with things yeah. as it comes to you. Yeah, you kind of have to in your yeah. in your position. Um, yeah, yeah, I fe- I, uh, I get that totally. And um, I can tell you, I can tell you from experience and, you know, these guys have the top notch care. I mean, the, the training staff, oh, yeah. the medical staff, and like I said before, the resources they have. So they're. There's no doubt in my mind that they did everything that they could and they did everything appropriately to make sure that this was not going to happen. But in the end of the day, you, you can only do so much. If it's going to go, it's going to go. And it's Kevin Durant. So not only is he a top percentile athlete, he's like a top percentile professional athlete. Correct. So he probably has like even more stuff that we probably <laughs> never yeah. even heard of I mean, or whatever. Durant, historically speaking, this is not a guy that's often injured, often missing games. Nope. I mean, he, pretty, he's a gamer. Yeah, that he, Jones he, fracture in... 2014 but that was about it yeah yeah um let's uh let's go over a few players uh real yeah. quick because uh i one i'm interested in Kawhi Leonard because the dunk that he got injured on was pretty uh routine dunk and i guess like you said that kind of that's the nature of the beast sometimes it kind of just yeah. happens um i thought it was i thought he landed normal i thought he looked fine afterwards but comes out that he partially well Sham Sarani of the Athletic reported initially in the days after that it was a partially torn ACL the Clippers really didn't say anything for like a month and a half and then eventually confirmed it but um as I understand it correct or correct me if I'm wrong a partially torn ACL versus a fully torn ACL that doesn't really make a difference surgery wise the timeline is still the same why is that so Anatomically speaking, the ACL ligament um, is is can be looked at as having two distinct bundles. Um, it is hard to kind of describe without showing you a model, but right. Um, so you can have a, a tear of one of those bundles, and technically that's a partial tear. Mm-hmm. You know, you can you can strain microscopic numbers of fibers. Technically, that's a partial tear, but usually it's graded. But the big thing with the ACL is it's a primary stabilizer of the knee joint. It's a very, very important ligament for rotational stability and translational stability of the leg. Um, And any compromise in that stability, whether it be through a partial tear or complete rupture, if it causes the joint to be unstable and, and causes laxity within those ligaments to the point where it's not functioning normally, then it's very rare that you can treat that conservatively without reconstructing, you know, reconstructing it. So when I hear that in the news um, and I hear the reports, partial this, partial that, listen, I've almost never in my career come across a partial ACL injury. I've hardly ever heard a partial ACL tear even reported. Well, well, it's, it's there. I mean, but, but I was going to say is in a professional athlete that doesn't get treated surgically, that's a recipe for disaster. If you, <laughs> I mean, I've had plenty of patients where we've gone in there surgically and we swore that the ACL was torn both clinically and with MRI confirmation. You get in there and you're staring at the thing 
and you can see that it's intact and it looks like it's where it needs to be. But then you start kind of tugging on it. You kind of start feeling it. And it, and then you're like, well, it, it may be there, but it, this is not functioning like a normal ACL. And, right. you know, so it really doesn't matter whether it was partial or not. The question that has to be answered in, in most cases is, is that thing functioning normally? And the, the, the likely answer is that it's not. And in that case, you have no choice but to reconstruct it. And uh, a few doesn't more. Doesn't change the timeline, doesn't change the recovery. ACL reconstruction is an ACL reconstruction. Yeah. You know, they've, they experimented back in the day with doing like partial reconstructions and repairs. And historically, those have very bad outcomes. I was going to so say that I, sounds like a bad idea. Yeah, there's really no way to kind of adequately and uh, successfully repair that ligament. You almost always have to perform some type of reconstructive surgery. Now you can you can leave some of the intact fibers if they're normal and healthy behind, but you're still going to put some type of synthetic or well not that we don't use that anymore, but you're still going to put some type of graft through there, whether it be a tendon from the other part of the leg or cadaver or whatever. Most guys nowadays are doing it from a either the patellar tendon, which is the tendon that goes from the kneecap to the yeah. tibia. That or, one's a uh, devastating one too, the patella <clears throat> tendon. Yeah, or the um um quad tendon where they take a portion and and so to reconstruct the acl what they'll do is they'll take a portion of those tendons not the whole thing but just a portion to reconstruct the acl and you can do that with the hamstring tendon too some guys will do the hamstring so, so there's various ways that we can do it but so what's the science behind of- um getting stronger after an acl injury because i've heard that too like you know you obviously rehab your after you get surgery you rehab you rehab but the leg is somehow stronger how does that how does that work um i'm not so sure if that's really true the ligament itself is usually that's why we have you on to confirm or deny (laughs) (laughs) i mean the goal of rehab is to get that like strong and you want it the hamstring muscle group is really the most important when it comes to acl stability and knee joint stability because that's often the, the muscle group that's the weakest that leads to those injuries. So they definitely do a lot of focus um, on the hamstring muscles, the quadricep muscles, which are the muscles at the front of the thigh, because those help provide stability to the kneecap and you know also provide significant strength with deceleration, so like slowing down from a sprint. And if those muscles aren't strong, then you risk also ACL injury again. So there's de- that's you know always been known, and that really hasn't changed much. Um, but... You know, the ligaments reconstructed initially, they actually are much stronger when you put them in initially because you're actually tensioning them intentionally making you're tensioning them intentionally tight. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, you're kind of you winding them to it. Be tight yeah. Because physiologically, as the healing process proceeds, they actually do get a little bit less taut and do loosen up to some degree. Yeah. And then as the body continues to mature that tendon and change the properties of it back into a ligament then it eventually will tighten up again. So there's a period of time where you're actually, the ligament is taut, 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 and then kind of loses some of that tautness and then goes down and actually you can be very uh, easily re-injured. So there, that's why the timeline is usually nine to 12 months and it hasn't changed much over the years. I, I am, first, uh, if you if if um, you think you're having a hard time explaining, I totally, I totally, well, not totally, but I feel like I understand what you're saying more than m- most sports fans. Like I said, given our, given the history with my basketball team and yeah. my, you know, years of 
going on WebMD and freaking out about how long a player's out and all that stuff. Well, you um, know, the whole and, thing behind my thing is I try to be very clear and concise. And yes. I talk to you as though I was seeing you in the office one-on-one. Yeah. And, uh, and I, and, and this is great. Yeah. This is great. And I, I don't like to use big medical terms. I try to keep it simple and easy to understand. <laughs> I, I've done all that. I don't like doing it when I'm outside of work. Yeah. Or not talking to my colleagues or people in the field. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I, I try to make it easy to understand. I try to make it make sense as to why some of these things are occurring. So thank you. Yeah, yeah of course. Um, so last few things before I let you go. Um, yeah. So Joel Embiid, um, he has, we, well, now we're, we are tied with him. And obviously I have no problem with that. I've loved Joel Embiid since Kansas. Um, I thought he should have been the number one pick in the draft. And then I was ecstatic when the Sixers got him at number three. Um, but obviously he has an extensive injury list, injury history at this point, unfortunately. And he's a superstar, but he's always had the tag. Well, if healthy, if healthy, if healthy. Um, so before we get into Embiid's recent injury, just you as somebody from the medical field, um, I'm sure you have tracked. Now, I'm not sure if you've tracked all the weirdness that goes on with the Sixers organization when it comes to injuries and stuff, no matter how many front office members we change. But I'm sure you have tracked Embiid to some extent. So when you look at somebody that big and that skilled, I guess, um, how – when his injuries were first cropping up, he had the he had the navicular bone injury, and then coupled with the back before the draft, and then he had to be out again with a, he had to redo the navicular surgery. Just what were your thoughts on him? Did you think he was going to be what he is now, given that his first two years he was basically had two devastating injuries that were historically that's death sentence for big men. Um, what were your thoughts on Embiid initially and? how you see him now, and I'm just worried, quite frankly, taking time bomb isn't the right word, but I'm worried about when Embiid turns like 32 and beyond. Um, so w- what are your thoughts on Embiid and his future, I guess, prospects, um, you know, health-wise and things like that with his size? Yeah, you know, um, immediately when he was dealing with that foot stuff uh, a couple of years ago what came to my mind was Yao Ming yeah um, Yao Ming had a Jones fracture in his foot it's a different injury than the navicular but it's notoriously a problem for a lot of big men in the NBA who often have that injury and it's one of those injuries that it can be difficult to get that bone to heal whether you do surgery or not and so um because that's the part of the foot where the blood flow is least present right correct and when you're talking about Jones fractures yes to be honest, when I'm looking at a bead, the, the thing that worries me the most are the low back stuff, man. Like mm-hmm. that, those are some really difficult problems to treat. Yeah. Um, He's had know. a lot of back tightness issues over the years. Tightness, tightness is something that most guys can work through, but if there's any structural problems in his back, like slip discs or herniations or bulging discs, that's when things become really, really difficult to manage and treat. So hopefully he, he doesn't have any of that spasms, tightness that can be worked around. Um, with regards to his most recent injury, I'm really not that concerned. But what does concern me is, again, the history, like you mentioned. You know, I don't think he's ever played, like, more than 62 games in a single season. He's played and, 61, I think. That was the yeah. that was the max. Yeah. Um, you know, anytime you hear a stat like that, you got to worry why, right? Is mm-hmm. it because 
he just can't handle the duration and intensity of the NBA season. No, 63 and 64 were his uh, best, yeah. his most games. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, and, you know, that seems to be a more common trend these days, you know, uh, for whatever reason. Um, but with regard to his most recent injury, I'm not too concerned about it. Um, meniscus injuries are uh, very common. Um, he actually was playing through it. Yeah. Not usual also. You know, if you pulled like a hundred people off the street who had no pain in their knee and you got an MRI of their knee, there's a chance that you probably find a meniscus tear or some type of irregular looking meniscus in like 75 to 80 of them. Do you have to do anything about that? And does it cause them to have any problems? Probably not in most of them. Well, that's what I was going to ask because his rookie year, he tore the meniscus in his right knee and he needed surgery on it. Um, I think, I don't know what type of, I'm pretty sure they he did the surgery where they took a portion of it. They might have, I don't know if they put it back together or took a portion out of it. Well, um, no, they probably I, didn't take a portion out because that's the one where you come back quickly, right? Um, well, so when we're talking about the meniscus, it gets a little complicated. They're, they're, first of all, there's two of them in the knee. Mm -hmm. They are kind of like, saucer-shaped structures that basically act like shock absorbers for you. The lateral and the medial, right? Correct. Inside and outside. Or outside and inside. Um, and like I said before, you can have people walking around with partial tears of those structures all the time, and it may not bother them. But there's a, a lot of different variations in the type of tear that can occur and the, and the location of the tearing. And that really dictates how you treat it and what the results are going to be. Most of the tears, if they're small little tears on the inner periphery of the meniscus, um, are usually just amenable to going in arthroscopically, meaning two small incisions, going in there with a camera, going in there with some instruments, and just cleaning it or debriding it out to get rid of that loose flap. Because it's basically like having a piece of paper here with a little tear at the edge. If you continue to use that piece of paper, if you pass it around from person to person, if you sit on it, put a book on it, whatever, eventually that tear is going to propagate and get bigger. Well, your meniscus reacts the same way. So you try to get to those tears if they're small and clean them up so that you have a nice clean edge to the meniscus to prevent it from propagating. And a lot of times the professional athletes, they're going to pull the trigger on doing a surgery like that much quicker than if it was you or me, mm. because they don't want that to become a problem down the road. And to have a small little arthroscopic procedure, which is like an in and out thing, you're walking the sit back home, you know, you're, you can start rehab almost immediately. Most guys can even come back from that within a couple of weeks at that level. You and I probably like more like six weeks because, <laughs> you know, we're just, we don't have the resources, but yeah. in a professional athlete, they could be back as quick as two. You know what? Russell Westbrook had this. I mean, it, you would be surprised how many guys yeah. have probably had the procedure done without us even knowing because it never makes the news because some guys just wait till the off season to get it addressed. Some guys have it done and it doesn't even make the paper because um, yep. they're back to action so quick. So that doesn't really worry me, but um, it's very few instances where you can actually repair that structure because it just doesn't heal very well. It has an outer third that's more vascular. The inner two thirds are not. Repairing them doesn't always work very well. So there's a lot of different variations in the type of injury that can occur there and the way you treat it. And that really dictates the recovery. It can also, you know, those are also very important structures that prevent arthritis. So mm. any damage to those structures over time um, eventually you will start to develop some arthritic changes in your knee. So Sixer fans shouldn't be worried about the fact that 
he didn't need surgery this summer because one they were pretty mum on it but then Daryl Morey after uh, the NBA draft he did a media availability um, he pretty much said that Joel didn't need surgery and that he's fine so we shouldn't be worried because it the injury he had it was a small lateral meniscus tear in his left knee um, and I'm assuming that that is not getting surgery is not uncommon but Correct. usually like whenever I see athletes get meniscus tears like you said um they get surgery on it so we shouldn't be worried about him not getting surgery uh yeah i mean all it tells me is that it probably it may not have really been bothering him as much as they thought Mm. or maybe when they found the tear on the mri it may not have coincided with what his symptoms were and so rather than address it surgically and have to put him through that unnecessarily they said well we'll just wait and watch to see how you do and do some rehab and give you some time to rest and if it gets better, then we don't have to do anything. We'll just kind of watch it. So that could have happened to like that too. Um, you know, it has to all make sense. It has to correlate, right? Like yeah. you can have pain on one part of your knee, but if the MRI doesn't show that there's anything going on there and your pain is somewhere else, well, then it's, there's a chance that maybe that's not something's the real amiss. You yeah. Know. Maybe um, it's something else. So, so last question. Well, um, ironically, though, did you notice that in his new contract, they did not cover him for any catastrophic injury? Nope. And it's complete. He's worth every, even with his injury history, I'm sure me and a lot of Sixer fans will tell you he's worth every penny. Like, So, he, so if he gets a catastrophic career ending injury, then his contract gets void. <laughs> it's essentially what. <laughs> yeah. That was in his first con. Yeah. This extension, it's the full max. No, yep. B- no BS like clauses or whatever. Also, he doesn't have an agent anymore. So he gets all that oh, money wow. himself. Um, yeah. So yeah. Uh, get the bag as we say. Um, <laughs> I wanted to end this episode on everybody's favorite topic. I think it's a generational topic between millennials and the previous generation because uh, it's the back in my day, we used to hike up a mountain, go down the hill, walk to school five miles, and then play a game through injuries. But load management, yeah. that has been a huge talking point for the last few years. Kawhi Leonard, as we mentioned earlier, kind of – took it to its extreme logical limits. Um, I guess my initial question is, does, I feel like load management has helped, but I also feel like I'm kind of in the middle on this. Like we, it's definitely helped. It's, we've definitely gotten smarter with how we handle injuries, but I also think that some of it is just, that's the nature of the beast and it's unavoidable. Like we were talking about earlier. So I'm just wondering how do you see load management? How much do you think it has been effective over the years? And maybe have we gone overboard with load management, considering that there is also the money factor and, you know, fans wanting to see these players? Like, like I could tell you as somebody who is, you know, uh, I work in radio, uh, we, um, the salary isn't that big yet, uh, but we save up money. And is a once in a lifetime or twice a chance to uh, see, you know, a, an athlete. Well, I, well, now not anymore because I can get press passes and stuff to a Kings game. But, um, you know, when I was in college and stuff, for example, me and my friends saved up a lot of money to get Warriors tickets. This was like the 2014 15 season, the Warriors' first title season. And we wanted to see Steph Curry, Anthony Davis, and Clay Thompson, Warriors versus Pelicans. 
Anthony Davis got hurt two weeks before that. It was like an ankle sprain, and they were going to hold him out. It was a week before, actually. Then Clay Thompson hurt his ankle the week we were supposed to go to San Francisco. And then we only got to see Steph Curry, who shot like four of 20 that night. <laughs> so it was kind of – it was fun, but it was like, oh, man. Oh, like, <laughs> it, But uh, how do you feel about load management, and how much of an impact do you really think it's had, and maybe is it gone overboard at this point? Um, I, so I think it all came about and developed purely because of Kawhi Leonard's uh, situation a couple of years ago when he basically was well, just the Spurs like, popular, popularized it. Right. Uh, right. And yeah. that's what I'm referring yeah. to when he was on the Spurs and he's basically like, I'm hurt. I'm not playing. Mm -hmm. And there was very little detail about what actually was the problem. Um, and we knew that he had, a, had had injuries to the knee and this term load management to me and to many people in my profession just signified that he probably has more internal structural damage to that knee joint than we realize. And as a result, in order to prolong his career and play at a high level for a substantial number of years to come, he's going to have to shut it down from time to time to manage it. That's what it means to me. And I think that it has been taken the term and kind of run with in different directions, but not appropriately so. I don't think it really pertains to anything more than that. The I think, beauty and evil of the internet. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, because because there's really no reason, like you know, you're you're gonna have these things that kind of pop up from time to time. You know, the human body is not meant or developed or designed to do these things that we're asking these athletes to do. It's just not. It's only through years of training, and conditioning, and practicing that they're able to do these things. Um, the overhand baseball pitch is probably one of the best examples when yeah. people pull their elbows and shoulders out because we're not designed to throw a ball 90 plus miles an hour overhand. You don't hear about softball pitchers having these problems because that's a normal anatomical movement. Um, right. And you know, you're going to see stuff like this in every sport. But to me, load management means he's probably got some arthritis in that knee that's more advanced than we probably even know or that many people even will realize because of the, the, the level that he's still able to play at. And in order to maintain that for any type of longevity, he's going to have to shut it down from time to time. And I think that's what that was all about. Um, unfortunately for him, now he's dealing with a whole new set, set of circumstances. Yep. And if that is the case, and now he's dealing with this ACL injury, that doesn't bode well for his future. Um, you know, unfortunately. So hopefully that's not the case, but you know, that he's been very, he's always been very tight lipped about what's going on with him. And oh yeah. That, Even with his own organization. Weirdly. Right. Well, that's yeah. The people around him are also like that. And you know, the organizations that he's been on during these times have also been like that. So it, it, it's a red flag for me. Yeah. Because it, to me that there's, there's probably a lot more going on than we've ever will know about. He's Brian Scott, a host of the Injured List podcast. Please check that out, as well as our other podcast on the Blue Wire Hustle podcast network. Uh, Brian, uh, this was this was very informative and fun, so I really thank you for coming on. Um, I'm going to have to bring you on again at some point during the season in case, you know, um, uh, some weird thoracic outlet syndrome story happens with the Sixers again or something <laughs> like that. And, you know, we need you to explain to us why we shouldn't freak out and all that good stuff. But uh, really yeah. appreciate you coming on, man. 
Hey, it was my pleasure. I'm glad I could uh, lend some insight and uh, give you a little bit of more knowledge about what's going, what goes on in this world. And uh, hopefully I could calm your nerves as a Sixers fan, not to get too panicked in these offseason here. You know, I don't think Sixer fans will ever calm down. That's just, <laughs> that's just what we're, you know, cursed with. It's a gift Listen, and a curse. I, I lived in Philly for two fan. years when I was in graduate school. I lived in Philly, so I know how it is. Uh, all the <laughs> Thank you. So, th thanks a lot, Brian. I can, I can empathize. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Brian once again for hopping on the podcast to talk injuries and indulge in my Sixers panic, so to speak. Um, very fun, very informative. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Give the podcast a five stars, if you will. Give a like and a review if you're so inclined. Uh, please spread the word. And again, thank you for the support. And we'll be back to another solo episode next week, you know, talking about you know, some of the free agency moves and summer league stuff now that that stuff's over. Also check out the Box Out Banter podcast with me and Chris Okamura. Thank you once again for listening. And until the next time, deuces.